still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this program is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. This episode deals with matters of race and uses some pejoratives associated with that, but they are only used within the context of the subject matter and do not represent the views of the podcast or any business or person associated with it. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 4 PC Keith Blakelock October the 6th 1985, Part 2 News of PC Keith Blakelock's murder spread rapidly across the Broadwater Farm estate, and according to multiple sources, as word spread, the intensity of the anger seemed to ebb away. The rioters thinned out, and the police regained control of the streets at around 4.30 in the morning. Smoke still hung in the air as the injured officers of Shield Serial 502 were variously taken to hospital or were left to sit in their Sherpa van in a state of dazed, terrified shock. The van wasn't an official police van. It was a private hire that had been used to ferry the officers into the riot. There would be no special sessions with counsellors or mental health advocates. This was the mid-1980s, where psychological problems were still regarded as weaknesses rather than the natural consequences of dreadfully traumatising events that needed treatment much like any other injury. More than one member of Serial 502 was left to find their own way to and from hospital. In the steel grey light of another Tottenham morning, the true extent of the damage done on the farm became apparent. Burnt out cars at various angles of rotation were strewn everywhere. A thick layer of rubble in handy fist-sized chunks, broken bottles, glass shards, lumps of twisted metal and scattered papers from the shops and private residences that had been looted, then gutted by fire, covered the entire area. Shops had been looted, but it was mainly a matter of the shelves being stripped and their contents scattered. The masses of violent and bloodthirsty rioters had evaporated like summer dew to be replaced by an army of workers clearing up the destruction. It sounds reasonable to begin the clean-up as soon as possible, but the Broadwater Farm estate was an enormous and complex crime scene. In clearing away the debris, vital evidence was lost. 
There were even reports of people seen burning clothing following the riots without police intervention. Any successful prosecution for such a serious crime needs to have as much evidence as possible to identify the culprits. And here the local council were busy removing and destroying, albeit unwittingly, destroying almost every last shred of evidence. The primary line of thought about cleaning up the site so rapidly after the riot was to remove any debris that could have been used against the police in any further public order disturbances, which, given the febrile nature of the situation, is an understandable decision. But even basic safeguards, well-established procedural safeguards for crime scenes, weren't followed. A cordon around the area where Keith Blakelock had been murdered and PC Coombs had suffered an attempted murder would have provided some material for forensic analysis. But all of it was lost. It has been stated that, quote, only the scorch marks on the tarmac and concrete from burning cars were left by the evening of the 7th of October, end quote. Although the police inaction regarding the burning of clothes was less than ideal, there may well have been operational reasons for it, although I find myself having to be sceptical as to any reason that would justify the destruction of evidence, especially where the murder of a serving police officer is concerned. This critical period, when the farm should have been treated as a crime scene, preserved for minute forensic examination, is undoubtedly the time that the killers, as there is undoubtedly more than one person responsible for stabbing a defenceless policeman, were able to evade justice. Speaking to the BBC some years later, Detective Chief Superintendent Melvin said, quote, We failed to put a cordon round the scene and therefore we lost much evidence in those first hours. It's true to say that much was burnt and much clothing from the rioters was burnt and knives were thrown into bins. We lost a great deal." End quote. The newspapers on the 7th of October screamed for justice. A wave of anger and revulsion swept the country and statements were made by top police officers and politicians from every side of the political spectrum. None of them championed the riots. All of them called for the guilty to be apprehended and carried the picture of PC Blakelock in his traditional Bobby's hat and long overcoat worn by the police in the 80s. To my mind, he looked slightly uncomfortable in the obviously formal shot. I've always felt that it was a poor representation of the man as it carries the whole notion of him being a figure of authority to a monotone extreme. Keith was a father and a husband, not just a policeman. Stephen Martin, another member of Serial 502, in 2014 during an interview, asked the question that everybody wanted and still wants to know the answer to. Quote, why were they so angry that they had to kill somebody who was married with children and just went to work like we all do to earn money to support his family? He was another human being. He didn't deserve to die like that. End quote. 
Although, so far, it seems as if there was little to no active response to the murder by the police, the opposite was actually true. A major incident unit was being established in New Southgate Police Station. New Southgate wasn't a regular police station, but was used by various support groups within Y Division, the division where the riot had happened. These included the local crime prevention officers, the community liaison officers, and the juvenile bureau. All important elements of policing, but when a major investigation into a murder begins, everything else becomes secondary. More so when it's the murder of a police officer. An increased pressure few detectives will face during their career. Several rooms in the station were converted into the different spaces that a complex investigation requires. In the basement level, an evidence room was established, although by the time the room was ready, all the relevant and incriminating evidence had been destroyed or put far beyond the reach of the police. There was a main incident room and a canteen to keep the detectives fueled through the hard work ahead. It wasn't long before there were squads of police going back to the Broadwater Farm Estate to pick up people that they knew were involved with the rioting and looting. A lot of this information came from the intelligence teams that had been on the ground during the build-up to and eruption of the riot. In total, there were a thousand photographs of the rioters that had to be combed through. A thousand pictures in today's digital world doesn't seem to be a great deal, especially where my line of work is considered. As a photojournalist, rattling through a thousand frames at a demo is quite easy to do, especially when there's a lot of action going on. But in 1985, things were distinctly different. Unless they had some sort of massive bulk film packs, like the 250 frame specialities, a thousand pictures works out to be around 28 rolls of 36 exposure film. For a massive riot, that's not a lot of pictures at all. Another problem with the photographs was that most of the rioters had covered their faces with scarves, bandanas or crash helmets, making identification of the offenders, even by the local beat bobbies, almost impossible. There were, however, a lot of people identified and before long the concrete walkways of the Broadwater Farm Estate were echoing to the sound of police boots, doors being sledgehammered and the shouts of police and detainees as arrests were made. The initial investigation had DCS Gallagher at the helm, but the decision was made to hand exclusive investigatory powers over the murder of PC Blakelock to Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Melvin. Melvin was given a team of officers from the Metropolitan Police's International and Organised Crime Squad, or C1 as it was classified. This was a team of highly experienced and trained senior officers and auxiliary staff. Results were expected. Among the 100 officers making up the MIT were several firearms trained specialists as there was evidence that there had been gunfire from the rioters during the disturbances. Bullet holes in some of the long shields bore testimony to the scale of the violence and intelligence suggested 
that some of the suspects were thought to have firearms. The first three arrests in connection to the murder of PC Blakelock were to prove to be very controversial. On October the 10th, 15-year-old Mark Pennant and 14-year-old Mark Lambie were arrested. On the 11th, Jason Hill, then aged 13 years old, was arrested. These were to become known as the Three Juveniles. Pennant had been arrested whilst at school, which was according to Detective Constable Lockwood, quote unquote, unavoidable. Mark had been raised in the West Indies until he was nine, when his parents returned to the UK. He was later diagnosed with a moderate degree of learning difficulties, which meant that the school he was arrested at wasn't a regular secondary school, but a special school for intellectually or behaviourally disabled children. To give an insight into the way that Mark Pennant viewed the situation and his understanding of the events happening around him, when he was charged with the murder of PC Blakelock, he asked the teacher who was with him, quote, does that mean I have to go and live with you? End quote. Once in custody, Pennant was informed that his mother had refused to attend the police station. Although this was later proven to be untrue and that at the time, his mum was unaware that her son had been arrested in connection with murder. He was then denied a solicitor as it was claimed that a solicitor would, quote, interfere with the investigation, end quote. Although this seems like an extraordinary position for the police to take, there were reasons, some of them really confounding, for the police to have such powers as denying access to legal representation to suspects. At the time, there was a new scheme being trialled in Tottenham. It was called PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. The pilot scheme would run in conjunction with judges' rules, a set of procedural guidelines to prevent evidence being ruled as inadmissible. These were first adopted in 1912. Judges' rules gave guidance on the way police could interview suspects when they were required to be cautioned, as in the first caution at the point of arrest, the next at the point of being charged, at which point interrogation would cease and no further questions could be asked. Judges' rules also required that a record of questioning was kept and gave formal guidance on the best practice for recording a statement. Whilst these were later adopted into Section C of PACE, the two systems were running concurrently during the investigation, and it isn't clear under which system the interviews were conducted. At the time, the only way interviews were recorded was by either a legal representative of the accused or by one of the police officers present in the interrogation room. Routine recording of interviews on tape didn't begin until 1988 and didn't become a standard procedure until 1991. There was another reason for the reluctance of the police to allow a solicitor to be present which was that the legal profession was having a great deal of problems with corrupt solicitors working for organised crime syndicates 
and some were known to be part of the criminal conspiracies that they were defending. The justice system had numerous flaws, but after some high-profile cases of solicitors being sent to prison for various criminal offences, the presiding bodies were able to institute wide-ranging reforms to restore some semblance of trust from the public. Although, sadly, there have been several high-profile cases where solicitors have been sent to prison for criminal activities related to their clients in recent years. The three juveniles had been arrested, not on evidence obtained during a rigorous investigation into the death of Keith Blakelock at the hands of a mob, but by the testimony of people who had been arrested for other offences related to the riot, looting and other public order related offences. Often these were vulnerable youths who were mainly interviewed without an appropriate adult present, but not all of them. One that is of particular trouble is the arrest of Mark Lambie. 14-year-old Mark Lambie had been arrested on the statement given by Mark Pennant. That had been obtained without any adult being present to prevent the 15-year-old from being coerced into a false confession or falsely implicating others. Lambie's first interview was with Detective Inspector Maxwell Dingle, with his father in the interrogation room. It has been said that the interview was conducted with impeccable fairness, with Lambie being helpful and cooperative, answering all of the questions put to him. He even admitted to, quote, playing a minor role in the disturbances, end quote. Lambie was charged with riot and murder and his case went to court. Despite this, the police introduced a witness at his trial who would testify that Lambie had played a much more prominent role in the dreadful events of that night. The witness in question was Jason Cobham. In court, Jason Cobham would face Michael Mansfield, who at the time wasn't a QC, Queen's Counsel, but was a regular barrister. Well, it would be unfair to judge him as such, as Mansfield could well be considered one of the great defenders, given his work with such cases as the Stephen Lawrence murder catastrophe, the Birmingham Six, and the Merck Liable too. Almost, but not quite as redoubtable as the legendary Sir Edward Marshall Hall. I digress. During his cross-examination of Cobham, Mansfield introduced correspondence between Cobham and a friend that revealed that he had played a much more active role in the riots than his arrest sheet made out. The charge Cobham had faced was for, quote, stealing a bottle of Cherryade and threatening behaviour, end quote. Cherryade, for those not familiar with it, is a type of carbonated fizzy drink, or soda, that is bright red and allegedly tastes like cherries. But I have to say, I think the approximation of cherry flavour is not very accurate. Anyway, for this, Cobham was fined £200. Pushing the witness further, Mansfield was able to get him to admit that the police had been paying the rent on the flat and had been paying for his groceries, which led Mansfield to push a little bit more and before long, 
Cobham was admitting to lying to the police and had only given evidence to avoid prison. Unsurprisingly, the prosecution counsel, led by Roy Amlett, withdrew the charges of riot and murder. Lambie, for his admission to some of the public order offences against him, was convicted of a fray only. His sentence was 120 hours of community service. Put simply, Mark Lambie shouldn't have been charged with riot or murder. Similar fates awaited the trials of Hill and Pennant. Pennant had been arrested at school, which was claimed by police to be unavoidable, but the judge, Mr Justice Hodgson, said that it was, quote, difficult to escape the conclusion that the purpose was to prevent his mother finding out, end quote. Pennant had been through five interviews in relation to the riot and murder. During these interviews, he gave the names of several people who, it was claimed, had had direct involvement with the deadly assault on PC Blakelock, including Lambie, Nicky Jacobs and someone called Styx, later identified as Winston Silcott. As part of his defence, his counsel, Michael West QC, introduced evidence from two psychologists, the first of whom said that Pennant was a suggestible individual of low intelligence, whilst the other testified that suggestible and vulnerable people were prone to giving unreliable confessions. This prompted Michael West QC to request that his evidence be ruled as inadmissible, which Justice Hodgson accepted and dismissed the evidence obtained. He said in his ruling, quote, I have no doubt whatsoever that there was no justification for withholding this youth access to a solicitor. The idea that this youth might have passed coded messages, or indeed messages in clear words via his solicitor, does not seem to me to hold water. One would have thought that by now the dangers of interviewing a juvenile in the absence of legal advice were too well known to require my repetition. In my judgment, the number of times when refusal to allow access to a solicitor by a juvenile is justified are so few as to be non-existent. To tell him that he was not to have anyone informed of his whereabouts was, in my judgment, an almost greater impropriety. End quote. Jason Hill had been arrested following witness statements that said he had been seen looting the shop on Tangmere Block, along with his brother. The subsequent raid on the Hill family home revealed around £100 of items taken from the shop, which led to the police arresting the entire family. Hill, who we must remember was only 13 years old, was denied a solicitor for the reasons of operational integrity. He was later interviewed by a temporary detective constable, Perry Cochran, with a social worker from Haringey Council, Joe Heatley. This interview was a four-hour traipse through previous statements which led to Hill admitting to theft, which validated the reasons for his initial arrest at least. There was, 
however, a series of decisions made that threw the value of Hill's testimony out of the window. At the point of his admission to theft, Hill should have been charged and sent before a magistrate for sentencing. But the extraordinary move to remove his representation and rather than comply with the recognised procedures as set down in the 1969 Children and Young Persons Act, which required a minor in these circumstances to be handed over to the care of social services, Hill was detained at Leytonstone Police Station overnight. The following day, when Joe Heatley returned to represent Hill as the appropriate adult from social services, he was informed that he wouldn't be able to sit in with him. At Leytonstone Police Station, Hill had his access prevented as it was believed that, quote, he had been instructed by his local authority bosses to instruct Hill not to answer questions, end quote. This is still a matter of contention, as it's very much two different versions of events. Heatley claims that he was going to instruct Hill to, quote, be careful about what he said and had the right to remain silent, end quote. This was because the police were intending to interview him about very serial criminal offences, including murder. Cochrane would later give evidence that he believed Heatley was obstructing the course of justice. Haringey Community Relations Council sent Hyacinth Moody to replace Heatley and take over the case. When the second day of questioning following the charges laid against him ended, Hill was further charged with burglary and his clothes were taken for forensic examination. He was then returned to his cell in Leighton Stone Police Station in only his underpants with a blanket for cover. Hill was subsequently interviewed about the murder of Keith Blakelock. Now remember, he is still in his underpants and blanket, both of which by this time was stained with the boy's own vomit, a state of affairs for which Hyacinth Moody was criticised for failing to intervene in the welfare of the child. It is alleged that he admitted that he, Lambie, Styx and Jacobs were responsible for the death. On the face of it, it seems plausible, but the testimony given by this poor, skinny white kid from a troubled estate was as unbelievable as it was shocking. Hill claimed that Winton Styx Silcott was overseeing some sort of ritualised slaughter which included bringing children forward to make a mark on the fallen officer and that Silcott had handed him a sword for the occasion. He also went in to describe in some details the injuries he is supposed to have inflicted. He even recounted that he had had a conversation with Silcott that ran along the lines of Silcott telling him that he was cool after cutting PC Blakelock and that he had seen nothing. Hill claimed that the reason for the attack was to decapitate Keith, place his head on a pole and parade it around the estate. There were several problems with this testimony. Aside from the fact that it was taken from a child in inappropriate circumstances, there were things to bring the evidence into such doubt that it should never have been admitted in the first place. The injuries which Hill claimed he caused to PC Blakelock, in quite a detailed way, 
were unsupported by the forensic evidence on Keith's body. It simply didn't happen in the way Hill described, nor, it must be said, did the ritualised aspect happen. The idea that in the midst of a riot, with police and firemen running for their lives, and the din of alarms, screams, shouts and the roar of the crowd, this little tableau of an urban blooding defies belief. Again, it simply didn't happen that way. As the testimony from the surviving officers of Serial 502 demonstrated. Bruce Laughlin, defending, said that because of the nature of the way testimony and statements had been obtained, the statement should be ruled as inadmissible. Mr Justice Hodgson, in throwing out the charges, said, quote, Very serious improprieties had occurred which amounted to oppression, end quote. He went on to the evidence obtained in relation to the testimony from Hill about the murder of P.C. Blakelock, saying, quote, when one has a confession made by a child, of which there is no confirmation at all, it is vitally important to check the accuracy of the confession to see whether it accords with the known facts. Time and again, Jason Hill gave the police warning signs that he was straying into make-believe, but, through no fault of theirs, the signs were not noticed, and when, even to their limited knowledge, what he was saying was plainly inaccurate, they put it down to deliberately lying." End quote. Mr Justice Hodgson was also quite direct with his criticism of Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Melvin. Referencing the way that Hill had been interviewed without a solicitor, the judge ruled that ultimate responsibility for the operational decisions would rest solely with Melvin saying, quote, he forgot that Jason Hill was a child, end quote. He went on, quote, I have, to an extent, to criticise him personally, I regret, end quote. With the cases against the three juveniles having been utterly destroyed by police mismanagement due to operational constraints, lack of physical forensic evidence, and an unimaginable amount of pressure to find those responsible for the murder of P.C. Blakelock that resulted in the judge instructing the jury to find Hill and Pennant not guilty, and the prosecution counsel withdrawing Lambie's murder charge. The arrests of three adults for the murder was now the sole line of inquiry the police had left. There was a dreadful familiarity with the events that unfolded. All three of the adults, Winston Silcott, Ingin Raghip and Mark Braithwaite, were arrested on the testimony of witnesses without a scrap of forensic evidence being offered. The outcome of their trial would be very different from the children's trials. The first of the adults to be arrested for the murder of PC Keith Blakelock was, in the opinion of a former detective inspector, David Rose, quote, It was all about how to get Winston Silcott convicted, not discovering who killed Keith Blakelock, end quote. Tottenham has had its fair share of trouble over the years. There was always a connection with gangsters, crime syndicates and smaller gangs. 
the easy access to central London by the overground and underground trains, and the Northern Circular Road providing easy access to the rest of the country's road systems. This mainly suburban streets of North London are an eclectic mix of the various cultures of the people who live there, as can be seen by the wide variety of small shops selling foodstuffs from around the world. It isn't just food from around the world. There's a ready market for drugs, and they are bought in from all over the world. This is, arguably, the bedrock of the black market, and by the time of the riots on the Broadwater Farm estate, Winston Sticks Silcott was seen as the, quote, biggest mafioso in Tottenham, running the mugging gangs, paying them with drugs, end quote. That's according to one unnamed former Tottenham police officer of a senior rank. I cannot judge or make comment on the accuracy of those statements, but as we're about to discover, Winston Silcott is, if nothing else, an extremely complicated person. Born in 1959 to parents of Caribbean heritage, Winston would be raised in an environment which was difficult for anyone. Apparently, he is reported as saying that he experienced racism all the time. And casting my mind back to the 1970s, when comics such as Bernard Manning, with his racist and homophobic spiel, were regular features on the TV in primetime slots, and sitcoms such as Love Thy Neighbour, which drew an enormous audience, so I suspect for the wrong reasons, in which a white, blue-collar, sub-urbanite late-thirties man came to find his views challenged by the Afro-Caribbean neighbours. There was plenty of florid and casual racism through the TV in those days, and it normalised the behaviour, which was quite open. Silcott has said that most of the racism he experienced throughout this period was from on-duty police officers. Silcott left school in 1974 at the age of 15 and would have been one of the generation who were in their school careers when the leaving age was raised in 1972 from 15 to 16. This must have been a sour feeling for millions of children who had an extra year of school life suddenly imposed on them. Millions got on with it. Winston Silcott, like so many others at the time, took a low-paying job and hopped from one low wage to another. Instead of progressing upwards, Silcott, for whatever reason or none, began to housebreak in 1976. In 1977, he was convicted of nine burglaries and was sentenced to several months of detention in the Borstal system the Great British Borstal System, a systematic approach to hard discipline and brutality from men in uniforms. The entire system was riddled with problems by the 70s, and although the official title of detention in the Borstal System was the rather misleading Borstal Training, the reality was that corporal punishment was a regular feature of Borstal life, and the prison officers weren't the only ones dishing out the violence. The scheme was abolished with the Criminal Justice Act 1982 and it went on to introduce the youth detention centres and community service orders. 
The same year that Winston Silcott was experiencing the Borstal system, a young Ray Winston was making a great cinematic appearance in the film Scum, which is set within the Borstal system. If you haven't seen it, do try to. It's a British classic and a bit of a rough ride. This trip to Borstal wasn't the only one Silcott would experience, as in 1979 he was again sent down, this time for wounding, earning himself, earning himself a six-month stretch. The following year, Winston Silcott was back in the dock, this time charged with the murder of Lenny McIntosh. There had been a fight during a party in Muswell Hill during 1979 and the 19-year-old post office worker ended up being fatally stabbed. Silcott would face trial for this murder twice. The first trial resulted in a hung jury. That is, there is no majority and there was no agreement on the verdict. The retrial resulted in Silcott being acquitted. As part of the government's determination to establish a greater sense of community on the Broadwater Farm Estate, grants for small businesses and enterprises became available. Winston Silcott was among those who applied for and won a grant to start a business. He opened a greengrocer's in the Tangmere block in 1983. It wasn't the end of his involvement with the wrong side of the law as the same year he was found in possession of a flick knife. Later, he would be convicted of obstructing the police. Although his past to this point was newsworthy, and there was some minor coverage of his acquittal, Winston Silcott wasn't on the national radar, until Princess Diana visited. Her spectacular PR campaign to show that failing and failed housing estates could be regenerated into vibrant communities full of hope, aspiration and identity, ran into the barbed tongue of Winston Silcott. When he said to her that she shouldn't have come without jobs, the national disgrace that is the Sun tabloid newspaper managed to interpret it as a threat, rather than a caustic commentary on the failing rejuvenation project around the Broadwater Farm Estate and the expense of hosting a royal visit. The Sun is a controversial newspaper and is the reddest of the red tops. For those listeners in the US, red tops equate to yellow journalism. Sensationist hit pieces designed to manipulate the emotions of the readers, often proven to be untrue in later court hearings that accompany so many of the articles in that newspaper. At the time of the visit, Winston Silcott was the subject of police investigation into the murder of a 22-year-old man during a party in Hackney in December 1984. He was subsequently charged with murder in May 1985 and released on bail. The injuries sustained by the victim, Anthony Tony Smith, were quite extensive. Smith, a boxer, bouncer and local gang leader had been set upon with a bladed implement that had been used to inflict slash wounds to his face, puncture wounds to his lungs and rupture his aorta. 
Silcott had initially claimed that he hadn't been at the party, then changed that to that he had been at the party but had not seen Smith there, which eventually changed to him having had an altercation with Smith that involved no more than barging, but that he hadn't been carrying a knife. He was subsequently charged and convicted of this murder, after which it is said that Winston Silcott had admitted to his brief that he had stabbed him in self-defence only. At the time of the riot, Winston Silcott was out on bail. Silcott had, allegedly, developed a reputation of such standing that following the fight with Smith, he had been so confident that no one would give evidence against him that he was still at the party when the police came to arrest him. Despite his self-assured air of protection from the police, three witnesses were found who would be prepared to give evidence at the trial. By the time of the trial, however, one witness had withdrawn their statement, another fled during a recess in his stint in the witness stand, and one, the only one, a woman who had to be rehoused following threats made against her during the trial, gave her full testimony. Witness intimidation was a feature of the trial to the point where Mr Justice Rose, presiding, said at the end of the trial, quote, at least three witnesses in court were terrified of you, end quote, and also branded him as a, quote, vicious and evil man, end quote. This information was withheld during the subsequent trial for PC Blakelock's murder, as it could have created a prejudicial influence on the jury. To protect the process of justice, Mr Justice Rose placed reporting restrictions on the case until the completion of Keith's murder trial. Every reporter worth their stripes know that subjudice is a ruling not to be taken lightly and is a contempt of court with a heavy penalty. On the night of the riot, Silcott was living in Martlesham block of the Broadwater farm. Anne had gone to the Tangmere block where his grocer's shop was. Here, it is alleged that he stopped someone from throwing a scaffold pole through his shop window. A friend saw him and offered to take him up to her flat on Tangmere to, quote, keep him out of trouble. Years later, in 2004, he said in an interview, quote, and look, I'm on bail for murder. I know I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. There's helicopters, police photographers everywhere. All I could think about was that I didn't want to lose my bail. End quote. He claimed that he only heard about the murder of PC Blakelock when he heard cheering from people watching the riot on TV and news of the murder was first broadcast. When Silcott was arrested on the 12th of October 1985, it was for the murder of PC Blakelock, with further charges of riot and affray. He would undergo a series of strident interviews, with him refusing to cooperate with police and refusing to sign the written notes taken by the officers during the interviews. It's important to be reminded that at the time there were no tape recording facilities and recording interviews was not a part of standard police procedure. So the following conversation attributed to being between Winston Silcott 
and Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Melvin only exists in the interview notes. Quote, Melvin, I believe that you were with and others standing over PC Blakelock when he was on the ground. You had either a machete or something like a sword with which you struck the officer. Silcott. Who told you that? Melvin. I am not prepared to tell you who has described your part in the murder of the officer. Suffice to say that I have been told you played an active part in murdering him. Silcott. There are any kids. No one's going to believe them. You say that they say that. How do I know? I don't go with kids. Melvin. What makes you think that the people I am referring to who have witnessed your part in the murder are young people? Silcott. Pause. You've only had kids in so far, haven't you? Melvin. If only one person had told me of your part in this crime, I would not be so confident in my belief that you were the ringleader that night. Where there is more than one person saying the same thing, the facts become clear. Silcott looked out of the window, stood up, moved to window, looked out, returned to chair, sat down. You, you, leaned back in his chair, tears in eyes, arms above head. Jesus, Jesus. Melvin, did you murder Police Constable Blakelock? Silcott. You ain't got enough evidence. Those kids will never go to court. You wait and see. Nobody else will talk to you. You can't keep me away from them. Melvin. What do you mean by that? Silcott. I ain't saying no more, and you've got a big surprise coming. You will probably lose your job. Melvin. Are you telling me that any witness is in danger from you? Silcott. Just take me down and charge me. I ain't saying any more. I ain't signing anything. You ain't got no evidence. Melvin. I have further reason to believe that it was your intention to sever the officer's head and to parade it on a pole through the estate within sight of other police officers. Silcott. I'm not saying anything more. I won't answer any more questions. You can't force me, ma'am. He sat back in his chair and closed his eyes." End quote. There are several notable things about this exchange. Silcott's phrase, you can't keep me away from them, has never been satisfactorily explained. Was it a threat to the witnesses? And the veracity of the notes is called into question by the legal system, as we'll see later. Even with that, Silcott had been granted bail allowing him to return to the Broadwater Farm estate. The next adult to be arrested was a 19-year-old Turkish Cypriot called Engin Rakip. Born in North London in 1966, he left school at 15 in 1981 and soon had a handful of convictions for theft and stealing cars. Functionally illiterate due to being mildly mentally handicapped, as testified to by a psychologist, although this was never disclosed at the time, Raghib would occasionally work as a mechanic and had a steady girlfriend with whom he had a child. He had no connections with Broadwater Farm 
he and his partner lived in Wood Green. He later admitted to going to watch the riot with a friend, and this friend was the one who would implicate him in the murder in a most extraordinary way. The person in question was John Broomfield. And in an extraordinary moment of braggadocio, tinged with a cavalier attitude to circumspection, Bloomfield gave an interview to the Daily Mirror, in which he said that he had participated in the rioting, which was subsequently published. To no one's surprise at all, he was arrested shortly afterwards in connection with the riot, and during his statement, named Engin Raghip as being involved. Before long, Raghip was being arrested for the murder of Keith Blakelock. The circumstances surrounding his arrest are straight out of an Ealing comedy, as David Rose recounts in his book, A Climate of Fear, The Murder of P.C. Blakelock and the Case of the Tottenham Three. Quote, Not realising that he and Sharon had their own flat in Wood Green, a detachment of armed police turned up at his mother's house in Palmer's Green. She was happy to put them right, but insisted they first come in for tea and biscuits. This they did, guns and all. End quote. There followed a series of interviews that saw Raghip give increasingly detailed and different accounts of his involvement and the course of events that night. At the time of his arrest, Raghip had spent the previous three days smoking cannabis and drinking alcohol, so was a little worse for wear and had not slept or properly eaten. He was then detained without legal representation for two days only getting to see the duty solicitor on day three. The solicitor stated that Raghip seemed distressed and disoriented. In his first incriminating interview, he admitted to throwing stones at the police. During the second, he claimed to have seen the attack on Keith Blakelock. Then in the fourth interview, he made the admission that he had been armed with a broomstick and would have hit the officer had he been able to get close enough. In the third, he said he had spoken to Winston Silcott about the murder and that Silcott had had a hammer with a hook on one side. A charge of a fray was laid following interview five and during the sixth interview, he is reputedly said to have stated that, quote, it was like you see in a film, a helpless man with dogs on him. It was just like that. It was really quick, end quote. It is reported that following this statement, which he did not sign, he vomited. The interrogation, conducted by Detective Inspector John Kennedy and Detective Sergeant Van Thal, continued and he, it is claimed, described the noises that PC Blakelock was making. In the next interview, he stated that he would have used the broom handle had he been able to get close enough. The next interview, was to see him, allegedly, giving a detailed account of the order of the attack on PC Blakelock. He was then held for another two days before being bailed. Six weeks later, he was charged with murder under the Common Purpose or Joint Enterprise rules. Common Purpose, later refined to Joint Enterprise, is a fairly simple, deceptively simple, really, legal position. My much truncated appraisal of the law is thus, 
If you are in the company of someone you know is carrying a weapon with the intent to cause fear, alarm, harm and even death and do nothing to stop that person from either carrying the weapon or undertaking the purpose for which they have set out, you are as criminally liable as the person with the weapon. It's the doctrine of duty of care fixed in a legal absolute definition. As you can imagine, it's earned many barristers considerable fees over the years. The final of the triumvirate to be arrested was 18-year-old Mark Braithwaite. Braithwaite was still living at home with his parents in Islington at the time of the riot. His girlfriend, with whom he fathered a child, lived on the Broadwater Farm estate and regularly visited them. Braithwaite was a young man with ambitions of entering the music industry and had begun that journey by DJing and rapping. It seems crazy to think about these days, but taking the plunge and starting on the journey towards a career in the arts in the 80s was somewhat of an undertaking. Today, fledgling creatives have a world of opportunity at their fingertips, with social media platforms giving them access to a potential audience of billions. In the 1980s, it took a bit more graft. That isn't to say that it isn't as difficult, but making art, be it rap, rock, or any of the visual, oral, or performance-related arts, is more of a plebiscite undertaking due to the ready availability, high-powered hardware, and relatively cheap software. In 1985, I was learning photography from every book and magazine I could hunt down. There was no Photoshop, no Lightroom, just darkrooms, and a lot of neck. By 19, I was working as an advertising photographer in London. Luck and talent, sometimes in a rather asymmetrical formation, will open doors. Some months had passed before Braithwaite was arrested. Police had had their attention turned to him when they were in the process of questioning another youth, Bernard Kinghorn. Kinghorn stated that he had seen Braithwaite at the riot, but didn't know him personally, but only by sight. It was the only time that Braithwaite's name had been mentioned. But that was good enough for the police, who promptly arrested him. What followed was a repeat of the pattern with Raghip. Interviews were conducted by Detective Sergeant Dermot McDermott, and Detective Sergeant Colin Bigger, without the presence of a solicitor and only notes taken by the interviewing officers as corroboration. I feel this left the police and any potential suspect quite vulnerable. The modern safeguards of audio and video recording allow for much more scrutiny of the suspect and far greater protection for the police. Over the course of the interviews, Braithwaite's story changed and evolved from not being on the estate at the time to being on the estate but only as a spectator, to then throwing stones at the police, to being at Tangmere at the time of the murder but not taking part in the assault. It then transformed to carrying an iron bar, to hitting Keith Blakelock on the chest and back as he lay on the ground with the iron bar, 
which was readily accepted by the officers interviewing, despite there being no injuries to support this story. It is claimed that he said he was hitting Keith while others were kicking and stabbing him as he lay defenceless on the ground. This was the confession that the police needed, so following this interview, Braithwaite was charged with murder. That didn't bring the interviews to an end though. In subsequent interviews, Braithwaite's story changed once more with a very serious and damaging, for the police, version of events. He admitted that he had been hitting an officer, but the officer he was attacking he described as blonde and clean-shaven. This is more consistent with the appearance of PC Richard Coombs, who almost suffered the same fate as Keith, whereas Keith Blakelock had a moustache, Coombs was clean-shaven. When he was given access to a solicitor, Braithwaite went through another four interviews, but refused to answer any further questions on the advice of his lawyer. The no-comment response to police questions can seem to be a dreadful waste of police time and an obstruction of justice, and some criminals undoubtedly do use it to thwart the end of justice. But it is an important part of our legal system. The British legal system has at its core the principle of innocent until proven guilty, and it is not the job of the accused to prove their innocence, it's the job of the police to find enough evidence to build a case that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the suspect has committed the crime of which he or she stands accused. Helping the police can certainly expedite the release of the innocent, and, if like me, you can't be doing with all of that nonsense, keeping your nose clean and out of trouble is a surefire way to avoid as much as possible, the police wanting to delve into every nook, cranny and crevice of your life. Whilst all of this was going on, with the three juveniles and three adults, the newspapers were having a field day of indignant howls for justice, and the newspapers to the right of the political spectrum were unabashed with their overt racism, which bordered on the inflammatory, and failed to mention that not all of the people who were arrested were black. The situation was further worsened when Haringey Borough Council leader Bernie Grant, an immigrant from British Guyana, was reported as saying, quote, the police got a bloody good hiding, which sounds crass and thoughtless. But as was later pointed out, including by Bernie Grant himself, that section was taken out of context and that the full sentence it comes from is, quote, The youths around here believe the police were to blame for what happened on Sunday and what they got was a bloody good hiding, end quote. Which still doesn't sound good at all. He was swiftly denounced by the Labour Party and made an apology to Elizabeth Blakelock for his comment. There still lingers an element of doubt about how Bernie Grant viewed the violence and killing that night. The Sun, in typical hate-mongering style and an unabashed racist rant, likened him to a monkey eating a banana and juggling an orange. Newspapers really do need a code of conduct 
to bring them in line with the broadcast media in the UK. Their wildly unbalanced, often incorrect and toxic rhetoric has been used and continues to be used to cause rifts and schisms in society that are potentially damaging in the short and long term. What we really need is a press regulation body that isn't run by the newspapers themselves. Tensions between the various racial and socio-political groups continued to build throughout late 85 to early 86. By May 1986, the number of arrests in connection with the riots looked very impressive. 271 properties searched, 359 people arrested, 162 charged, 63 of whom were charged with a fray, with 19 of those pleading guilty. The 43 who pled not guilty went to trial, 19 were found guilty, and the remaining 24 were acquitted. By the time the three adults came to trial, the three juveniles had all been released and the trial of the adults was a relatively short affair. At the end of summing up, the jury went out to consider their verdicts. Three days and two nights later, they returned with unanimous guilty verdicts. It's important to point out at this stage that the jury were making their decisions based only on the evidence presented in the defendant's statements to the police during their interviews. They weren't to consider any information about references to the defendants by other defendants. That was all they had to go on. No physical evidence, no photographs of the defendants taken at any point during the riot, despite 1,000 photographs being taken. Just their interview notes were the evidence, and most of those were unsigned. It's also important to know that the press was strongly criticised by Mr Justice Hodgson presiding. The publication of various articles alleging that preparations for rioting across London had been going on during the trial and that the mass riot was planned to coincide with the verdicts being announced was fear-mongering at its worst. The Sunday Express, a tabloid, had the headline of Flashpoint Tottenham on the 15th of March, over the course of the weekend deliberation. The article claimed that there had been meetings with community leaders and police to avoid potential trouble. It alleged there were plans to, quote, take out, unquote, Tottenham Police Station by burning it down. It also said, quote, Unrest is feared, whatever the outcome. Unquote. Mr. Justice Hodgson, when addressing the jury, mentioned a large amount of coverage the case had attracted. He said, quote, Some of it extremely reprehensible. The story of the riot preparations was later found to have been leaked to the press by a police press officer briefed to do so but it had no substance. Mr Justice Hodgson gave Silcott a life sentence with a minimum of 30 years before parole. Raghip and Braithwaite were both handed life sentences without further direction as to parole eligibility.
in the courtroom, Engin Raghip, shouted, quote, You've made a big mistake. I didn't do it. End quote. In the public gallery were the families of the men on trial, and when the verdicts were read out, there was a lot of commotion from them, with one woman having to be escorted from the court. That was it. Case closed. Three men had been sent to prison for the barbaric murder of PC Keith Blakelock. Only that wasn't it. Engin Ranghip was granted the right to appeal in 1988, and it soon became clear that he had a very strong case of a miscarriage of justice. His legal team had Engin examined by a leading forensic psychologist, Dr. Giselle Gudrasson, and I apologise to my Icelandic listeners for that, examined Mr. Raghip extensively. The esteemed doctor was a specialist in suggestibility at the Institute of Psychiatry. He deemed that Engin Raghip had the mental age of a child between 10 and 11 years old, and that he was unusually suggestible. Despite this, this first appeal failed, which caused a great deal of political comment, including from the former law lord, Lord Scarman, who said that the verdict should be overturned. Michael Portillo was, at the time, Raghip's Member of Parliament. And, with Engin's solicitor, Gareth Pearce, and supported by a second psychiatric report, called on the Home Secretary to review the case. Gareth Pearce, for those who are not aware, is a woman. I mention this because Gareth is an unusual name for a woman, but her full name is Jean Gareth Pearce. Gareth was portrayed in the film The Name of the Father by Emma Thompson as the solicitor who overturned the convictions of the Guildford Four. All were wrongly convicted of the provisional IRA pub bombings in the 1970s. She had lodged an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights, stating that his treatment during the interview process had broken the European Convention on Human Rights. The then Home Secretary, Kenneth Baker, now Baron Baker of Dorking, I kid you not, referred Raghip's case back to the Court of Appeal. Whilst Pierce was busy with Raghip, Silcott's lawyers were preparing for their own appeal. For this they requested the original notes from the interrogation, and they were granted access to them. Once they had the notes, they subjected them to a recently developed technique called electrostatic detection analysis. To quote Wikipedia, an electric static detection device, EDD or ESDA, is a specialised piece of equipment commonly used in questioned document examination to reveal indentations or impressions in paper that may otherwise go unnoticed. It is a non-destructive technique, will not damage the evidence in question, allowing further tests to be carried out. It is a sensitive technique capable of detecting indentations on pages several layers below the top sheet and many years after the indentations were created." End quote. What they discovered would be controversial. Robert Radley conducted the ESDA 
and his findings showed that the pages relating to the fifth interview, where Silcott supposedly implicated himself, had, in fact, been written and inserted after the evidence had been given, and that examination of the blank sheets of paper below the pages showed no evidence of the statement having been given. Even more damningly, further examination of the blank sheets revealed a page of testimony that matched the timeline of the interview, but did not include Silcott incriminating himself. Far from it. The investigation concluded that the extra testimony had been written by Detective Inspector Maxwell Dingle. The section in question was where Silcott allegedly said, quote, they are only kids, no one is going to believe them, and those kids will never go to court, you wait and see, end quote. The appeal was heard on the 25th of November 1991 and took a mere 90 minutes to overturn the verdicts. All confessions were ruled as unreliable. Raghips due to his suggestibility, Braithwaite's because of being denied a solicitor during questioning and Silcott's because his interview notes had been contaminated. I'm going to dash through the police trials but only because of the time it would take and I don't really want this to go to a third episode simply because there are, unfortunately, other cases to cover and there's still another arrest to go. The second investigation into the murder of Keith Blakelock was conducted by Commander Perry Nove. He had no more evidence than the first investigation as almost all, if not all, physical evidence had been destroyed by the end of the 7th of October 1985. No found himself with a list of nine names, all eyewitnesses apparently, reported as having been involved and it was even broken down into kickers and stabbers. Police terminology, not mine. Of the nine, one was Nicky Jacobs, who I mentioned earlier and who we'll meet later. There was also an investigation into the police actions during the first investigation running at the same time. Two officers had cases built around them, Detective Chief Superintendent Melvin and Detective Inspector Dingle. They both faced charges of conspiracy to convert the course of justice, with Melvin also facing perjury charges. The crux of the police trial was around the disputed passages and statements that implicated Winston Silcott. In all, there were seven statements the police claimed to demonstrate the culpability of Silcott. All the witnesses refused to testify, so the statements were read out in court. Some of those statements were from the three juveniles who had, years earlier, had their testimony thrown out or the jury was directed to find not guilty. Evidence for the defence of the police went over the ESDA evidence and claimed it was unreliable. This was, in all but name, a retrial of Winston Silcott, without Winston Silcott being in attendance. At the end of the trial, the police officers were cleared by a unanimous verdict. The next, and at the time of writing, last arrest for the murder of PC Keith Blakelock came about in 2010. Ten men were arrested in connection with the crime, including Nicky Jacobs. 
These arrests were made following new information, and within a short period of time, through investigation and elimination, all but one charge was dismissed. The last person was Nicky Jacobs. At the time of the riots, he was a 16-year-old living with his mum in Manor Road, Tottenham. A known member of the Park Lane crew gang, and with a session in a residential school following a care order behind him, police photographs proved that he had been at the riots and had been seen with a petrol bomb, a basket of rocks and a crate. By the standards of the rest of the trials that had been held, this was solid stuff from an evidentiary point of view. It was certainly enough to land Jacobs with a hefty sentence for a fray and riot for which he initially was handed eight years, which was then reduced to six on appeal. It was during his incarceration in 88 for offences relating to the riot that he wrote some rap lyrics. Quote, Me have de chopper, we have the intention to kill and police officer PC Blakelock de unlucky f him dis and help de fireman who did an out and fire de fireman see we have come and decided to scatter but PC Blakelock him never smelled a danger, but when we fly down upon him, he starts scream and holler. Everyone gather round and have pure laughter. He tried to head out, but we trip him over. He start beg for mercy, but it didn't matter. Him try to play Superman and him go capture him and have to face the consequences. We chop her, we start chop him on his hand, we chop him on him finger, we chop him on him leg, we chop him on him shoulder, him head, him chest, him neck, we chop him all over. When we done kill him off, Lord, I uh, feel much better. Uh, me just wipe off me knife and go on daughter. We sit down and talk and she cook me dinner, end quote. Middle-aged white guys from the rural wilds of Oxfordshire shouldn't really attempt rap, as you've just been unlucky enough to witness. This was, the prosecution claimed, evidence that Jacobs had known about the killing and had participated in it. His defence QC, Courtney Griffiths, a Jamaican-born English barrister, argued that lyrics do not make a murderer and that Bob Marley had not faced prison for writing the song I Shot the Sheriff. This is true. Rap, like any other narrative-based lyrical form, draws its inspiration from the environment surrounding the author. Rap, to my mind at least, is urban folk music. It shares many of the features with traditional folk music in that they both retell stories that have a relevance to the audience and the performer in social, political and experiential contexts. The current flap about drill rap is just another example of this. Drill has violent and aggressive lyrics because the kids who are living in the inner cities are experiencing violence and aggression all around them. And even if they're supposedly good kids from stable families, street artists write to their audience's tastes. I've written plenty of angsty doggerel about local, national and international events, and on the reasoning of the prosecution, 
I should be tried for everything from loitering to treason, but they're just words about events, not confessions. To balance that, though, it's important to mention that when Jacobs was arrested in May 2000, he is reported to have said, quote, F*** off, I was one of them who killed PC Blakelock, end quote. Which is quite an extraordinary thing to say. Although the defence argued, successfully, that it was no more than a, quote, flippant street remark, end quote. I have to say it's a staggeringly dumb thing to say. It could be viewed that Jacobs had capitalised on his association with the case to other members of the criminal class to give himself some street status, which is horrible enough as it is. But to then make that admission in a threatening manner to police officers as they're arresting you is, well, unwise at best, ill-conceived at whatever level, and thoroughly repugnant. There were three main prosecution witnesses, all of whom were to give testimony behind a screen with their voices disguised. Their identities were masked with pseudonyms, John Brown, Rhodes Levin and Q. The witness known as Brown was a member of the Park Lane crew gang and had damning testimony that he had seen Jacobs attacking Keith with a machete or similar implement. He also stated that Jacobs had been vocal about wanting to, quote, do a copper, end quote, on the night of the riot. It turned out that Brown had been on the payroll, as it were, of the police for some time. In 1993, he received £5,000. In 2011, he had been paid £590 for his rent. The police were also paying for the credit on his mobile phone to keep in contact with them. The police also paid for the annual roadworthiness test, an MOT. He was also made aware of the reward that the Sun newspaper offered of £100,000. In what must be one of the most bizarre statements from a member of a North London gang, the witness known as John Brown said, quote, I can't tell the difference between them. To me, a black man is a black man, end quote. Further strangeness happened with the witness known as Rhodes. He had previously stated that he had seen Winston Silcott leading the attack with a machete. He claimed that Keith's helmet had been handed round like a trophy, although he could not remember who had handled it. This was given during an interview in November 1985. But at the trial in 2014, he retracted that, saying that it wasn't true. It was then disclosed that he had been offered immunity from prosecution in return for his evidence and that the police had paid him £5,000. That they had also paid for a flight back from Spain when he had missed his flight and in 2008 had also paid for the deposit and some of the rent on his accommodation in return for his evidence. Witness Q was, allegedly, a cousin of Jacob's he had come forward after police had conducted a leaflet drop and one of the leaflets was posted through his door. He claimed to have seen the attack in person. This was rapidly and decisively destroyed by the defence team who labelled him a fantasist.
This was because he could not accurately describe where the attack on PC Blakelock had occurred. After the trial, during which Jacobs did not give evidence, the jury went out for a day. When they came back, they returned a 10-2 not guilty verdict. And there, to date, is the state of play. The people who viciously attacked and hacked and unarmed and, at the time, a completely defenceless police officer, a beat Bobby, are still at large. Most of the people who have been mentioned in relation to this crime have gone on to be active, to varying degrees, members of society. Some, however, haven't. Mark Lambie, one of the three juveniles, was given a 12-year prison sentence in 2002 for the crimes of kidnap and blackmail, following two men being held and tortured by him. He's been variously reported by newspapers as a yardy gang leader, a hardened criminal and a major gangster. Yardy gangs in the UK has a somewhat nebulous meaning, but generally refers to any group of criminals with a majority of members from a Jamaican heritage. As to the emergency service personnel, their lives were touched forever by that night. PC Coombs had to retire from the force after his assault, as he had developed epilepsy from the brain injuries sustained. Every member of Shield 502 were awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for outstanding bravery and devotion to duty. Sergeant David Pengelly, who faced the rioters with no more than a short shield and a baton, was awarded the George Medal, the civilian equivalent of the Victoria Cross for having acted with total disregard for his own safety in rescuing the injured officers. Trevor Stratford was awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Graham Holloway and Stratford were given commendations for bravery and the other firefighters received the Chief Fire Officer's letter of commendation for their actions. A memorial to Keith Blakelock was erected on his home beat in Muswell Hill. The events of the Broadwater Farm Estate led to wide-reaching restructuring of major instant management systems, with ranks being replaced by three levels of command, gold, silver and bronze, with different command responsibilities. Gold is strategic, silver is tactical and bronze is operational. That has remained the case and is still in operation at every major incident today. Throughout all of this, what cannot be forgotten is that a father of three went to work and never came home. He was set upon by a violent and bloody mob, and as yet, no successful prosecutions have convicted any one of the crimes against Keith Blakelock. If you have any information about the death of Keith Blakelock, please call 101 and give them everything you know about it. You can also report, anonymously, any information that may help bring the killers to justice by calling Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. That's 0800-555-111.
to close the show, here's Elizabeth, Keith's wife, speaking to ITV News in 2014. We lost Keith, but then learning how we lost him, I find that very, very difficult and not right. Something isn't right. You know that, you know, something happened to trigger um, anger, um, ill feeling, and so you go out looking for a uniform, a policeman such as Keith, who all his career just helped people. He went into Muswell Hill and tried to build bridges between all the ethnic minorities. He was a friend to them. And this friend who was helping the firemen put out fires, you know, that night, um, try and save people, try and save people's lives. Because he did that, you do what you did to him. You know, you wouldn't do that to an animal, you know, let alone a human being. And that human being was lying there begging you, please, begging you for his life. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. If you would like to, you can follow us on Facebook by visiting facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur media production. <laughs>